So listening to each of you speaking about working with renunciation in your practice, the the occurring theme that is present in each is the relationship with I am. And uh, this is not a small topic. And so I just want to talk about it from a slightly different perspective for a moment and see if we can tie it back in with renunciation. Um, Most of the time, for most of our lives, we spend our lives absorbing into the objects that we experience. So in this room, we've got a shrine, and we've got candles, and you can hear my voice, and there's beautiful tonkas that are on, the lights are on, but they're not too bright. We've got cushions and a carpet and a floor, and we've got a room that's been recently painted. And it's, for the most part, quiet, but we can hear the ticking of the talk of the clock in the background and a lot of the time what we do is we absorb our attention into the things that we see in the room or the things that we experience in the room and you know we can turn the lights on we can stand up we can put the cushions away and the chairs away we can stop talking we can turn the lights off we can lock the door we can change the tacos we can polish the Buddha you know and Maybe 20 years they'll repaint the walls. You know, maybe in the same amount of time they'll change the carpet. Maybe in a hundred years the building will fall down. But what what we miss is is the space. So the attention fixates and focuses on the things, and it misses the space. And so you know, we come into the room and we get a sense of where people are sitting and what my relationship is to them sitting and whether I'm facing the right way and whether I've got the right things and whether I'm doing the right thing. And and so it's all, you know, how am I in relationship to the space of the objects in the space? And I happen to think the talkas are beautiful, you know, and I find them very lovely. You know, somebody else might find them dizzying, you know, I don't know what, but... So there's things and then there's a relationship with things, but we don't see the space. We miss it. And again, most of our lives, we identify ourselves with the objects in our own personal space. So our feelings, our sensations, our moods, our thoughts, our memories, our beliefs, our values, our judgments. And we watch them change, and some of them are pleasing and according to our value system or identity of who we take ourselves to be, and other times they're not. Sometimes we like them, sometimes we don't like them. But we miss internally, in the same way we miss externally, that everything arises in the spaciousness of awareness. 
So, the I am, I am this, I am that, I am what I think, I am what I feel, I am my body, I am my thoughts, I am my memory, I am my value systems, I am my judgments, I am my practice, I am my aspirations. It's a thought. It's an I am thought. And the I am thought arises in awareness and is known in awareness and ceases in awareness. And, you know, the different kinds of working with renunciation is, is, comes back to understanding and getting a handle on the I am thought and how we are relating to that as an object in awareness. So the stuff of our lives, the structures of our lives, the routines of our lives, the habits of our minds, the habits in our family systems are emerging out of I am and what I want and what I don't want. So it's like kind of the buck stops here kind of thing. When we get a handle on that, then the other things also have another perspective. We have another way of relating to it. We can see it more with clarity rather than through the lenses of attachment and aversion, which are common. Now, I am can take many disguises, and one of the disguises that I am can take is that I am a humble person. And I've seen this in the monastery, where I am a humble person becomes like, I don't know, or you hold your head at an angle, you know, because there's something humble about holding your head in an angle. <laughs> you know, and it looks to me like they've got a worm that's in their ear or something. <laughs> and so there's something which is an idea about what we think we'd like to be, which is actually rather completely different from what humility is actually about. And so, you know, the renunciation of letting go of the I am thought then brings us back into the the clarity of what is actually happening here. So what's actually happening is, is there is a need to appear humble. There's a need that others see us as humble. There's a need that we pretend that we're humble. But, you know, I'm not so sure that there's actual humility happening. You know, when a person's hanging their head like that. So, though I can't say for sure because I don't know what's going on in another person unless, you know, I check it out with them. So it's my perceptions rather than my... But I know when I put on pretenses where I'm acting in order to appear, that's what happens for me. So I can speak from my own personal experience that way. And so then, you know, again, it comes back to um, the sense of I would like... I would like I would like to be kind and gentle and humble and I would like to be thoughtful and sensitive and I would like to be you know responsive and I would like to be uh, conscientious I would like to be and you know it's it's not like it, they're bad things you know but what I would like and how I actually am may not necessarily be the same thing So the renunciation aspect is the willingness to let go of the I am as a thought and then tune into the reality of what is is the reality of what I'm experiencing. And that's where truthfulness comes in. 
So the clarity to recognize it's an I am thought is discernment. And the truthfulness of what's actually happening then helps redirect the letting go to being able to allow attention to rest in in what is. Now, one of the things about insight that I mentioned before, and we all giggled, is that it's painful. And part of the reason why it's painful is because we have elaborate structures around creating the sense of who I am. And insight often brings material that's contradictory to our idea of who we are. And that's painful. And so when we let go of I am as a thought, then we enter into the territory of, well, well, what's then happening and where do I place my attention? And that then can have an opportunity for um, more insight as well as more letting go. But, um, you know, we, 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 uh, we saw a vehicle on the road and I, and I was asking Pat, you know, who, who on earth would have a vehicle like that? You know? And, you know, because it, it just seemed like, you know, why, what would, what would it, what would it, purpose would it serve? You know? And then we both surmised that it was, it was a, I think the nickname we used was a high testosterone coefficient. (laughs) (laughs) You know, a a, a big tough dude is going to have a car like that. Um, You know, so, and I don't know, because I didn't meet the driver and I don't know what their motivation was and I don't know what they were using it for. But there was a sense that the stuff of our lives is portraying an image of who we think we'd like to be or, and, and then that's often, you know, kind of what happens. So there's a, you know, that, you know, what we buy, where we shop, what we wear, the kind of food that we eat, you know, are, are signals of our identity. And, uh, how we how we relate to ourselves, but in meditation, obviously, we're not our stuff. <laughs> you know, we're not our body. We're not our stuff. We're not our ideas. We're not our thoughts. We're not our values. We're not our beliefs. And then and then and then it it begins to ask us the question. So, if we're none of those things, then who are we? You know, when we let go of all of that, what's left? Well, that's a really wonderful question to stay with. When you let go of everything, what's left? Now, I've had the good fortune as well as the horrendous experience of being cornered into positions where I've had to let go of everything. And I'm sure you have as well, you know, in some greater or lesser degrees. And it's both the most horrifying and terrifying and horrendous experience I've ever been through as well as the most liberating because we really are not any of the things that we think we are. And they can all kind of melt or dissolve or deconstruct. And I didn't die, I didn't dissolve, I didn't get absorbed into the earth. You know? And even though, you know, it felt like the whole thing was a trembling, quivering pulp, there was still clarity and awareness and discernment that was operating. 
So, you know, it's an interesting reflection what's left when everything goes. You know? And there's ways in which that can be a scary question and there's ways in which that can be a profoundly peaceful and deeply, deeply, deeply liberating inquiry. What happens and who am I when everything goes? So that's renunciation on the ultimate level. And it's okay to contemplate it. But that's not the only level that we can consider renunciation. You know, we can consider it on all the other levels as well. And so, you know, practices are useful to pick up as we find helpful. But sometimes what happens in life is, is that we're not given a whole lot of choice. You know, it's just, it just handed to us. This is your practice. And this is the parameters. And this is what you have to let go of. And you are not in control. So getting a handle on this kind of work and learning how to let go of stuff when we are in control means that when we're not in control, we have a little bit more experience with the movement of mind. So that at least the terror that comes with it is something that's more familiar. We have more practice with it. Have you heard of the movie or read the book, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? Yeah. It's a story of a man who was a high-powered journalist of a fancy magazine, and he had some kind of a massive stroke and ended up in what is known as locked-in syndrome. So that the only thing that he could move was one eyelid. Everything else was paralyzed. And yet he could feel everything. So he was feeling. He wasn't, he was, it wasn't that he didn't feel things but he couldn't move. So he couldn't speak. He had no control over his bowels or his excretory functions. He couldn't eat. He couldn't move anything except for one eyelid. Well, you know, that is a rather significant practice in letting go. You know? And he, he ended up writing a book by dictating... The, there was a speech therapist who came up with an alphabet system where he could, she would, she would go through the alphabet and he would blink twice when she got to the right letter. And through doing that, every single letter of every single word, he dictated a book. The book is much, much better than the movie. Much better. But nevertheless, it's like a window into, you know, some of the kinds of things that happen in life that are just, like, absolutely the worst nightmare that you could possibly imagine, you know? So we don't need to think about stuff in order to scare the eebie-jeebies out of us, but just the reality is, is that there's all kinds of situations that happen that are rather completely out of control. And it's helpful to practice in a way where we're able to respond to that. Now, I don't know that anybody really would be properly prepared for a practice like that. I mean, that's pretty pretty much on the extreme. But, you know, it's worthwhile contemplating. Anyway.
Wait, are there any questions that come from what I've talked about this evening? something that I can tell you. It's a question that needs to reveal its own answer. Whatever answer I can articulate will not be the same um, realization that you arrive at yourself when you keep holding that question until it becomes clear to you the answer. Does that make sense? So the interface between psychotherapy and meditation practice is a very rich topic. And there are lots and lots and lots of ways when it's very, very helpful and very supportive and very complimentary. But like there's many different kinds of paint, there's many different kinds of psychotherapy. (laughs) And some psychotherapy really makes a lot of, of identifying with the story. And and so it depends on not only this this kind of modality of the psychotherapy, but also the skill level of the therapist to understand that the you know the accessing the story is one very very beginning step mm-hmm. of being able to have contact with the feelings connected to the story in order for the whole thing in order to process and then release. 
but it can't release. The emotions can't release if you're still attached to the story. Yeah. So any psychotherapy that invests in identification with the story is a psychotherapy that I wouldn't say has a huge amount to offer. It might have some. It might have a lot, but not a huge. Yeah. yeah. Or it's helpful as, a, as that initial stage. That's right. But right. it's important not to let oneself get stuck in that. You know, whether the psychotherapist leaves you stuck there or not, you can, oneself can still exactly using it as an excuse. Oh, this is why I'm this way. Exactly. So, you know, cause and effect is a useful way of looking at information and looking at circumstance and looking at conditions in the present. But eventually the buck stops here. The information that I have about the causes in the past are to influence my choices in the present. It's not for me to stay fixated and identified with the past. Yeah. So, you know, it's helpful for enough of the story to come out just so that one can connect energetically with the emotions around it and the body feelings connected to that in order for it to move through. But you're right. If the therapist isn't up to it, then you need to be. Yeah. There's a, oh my goodness, there's a wonderful chapter in Carol and Miss's book about the, um, the victim identity. Mm-hmm. And it was so spot on. Oh my goodness. You know, this, this culture is a victim culture. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people introduce themselves through their woundedness. Hello, my name is, and I am a survivor of. And if you're not interested in supporting that identity, that's very offensive. Anyway, she writes about this in, in, in a way that is so clear. <laughs> it's, um, it's very, very clear. So having an identity that's fixated around being a victim is not helpful. But I don't know anybody who actually genuinely has been a victim where they don't have to kind of wallow in it for a while in order to move out of it. So as a lifetime identity, it's not useful. But as a transition period in order to heal, it's inevitable. You know, it's almost inevitable. The the traumas that are often involved are so significant for the mind-body processes to handle that just about the only thing it can do is, is use that as a reference if that's what it's dealing with. So everything is contextual, you know. Everything is. And, you know, what's helpful is to respond to what is arising mm-hmm. with wisdom and compassion and to do what's the right thing for where one's at. And then to let go. And then to let go. Yeah. Ajahn Chah said, don't be an arahant. Don't be a bodhisattva. If you are anything at all, you will suffer. (laughs) And then the other thing that he said is if you let go a little, you'll have a little bit of peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. So that's enough for an evening.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.